The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 12. The Fall of Constantinople. Constantinople, one of the most unique and important cities in world history. A city that throughout history found itself at the centre of a major crossroads of world politics, religion and trade. Its location is on a European landmass peninsula pointing towards a similar Asian landmass peninsula that together act as a barrier between the Black Sea and the larger Mediterranean Sea. The barrier is penetrated by the Bosphorus Strait, which separate the two peninsulas. They may have once been joined together as an isthmus. The most popular theory about the geological history of this area is that the Black Sea used to be a disconnected freshwater lake until the degradation of the isthmus allowed the seawaters of the Mediterranean to dramatically gush into the Black Sea via the brand new Bosphorus Strait that appeared around seven and a half thousand years ago. If this happened, then the sea levels of the Black Sea would have risen by a considerable amount and has been hypothesised to be the event that is immortalised by many religious ancient cosmological texts the most famous being the story of Noah's Ark, told in the holy books of the three Abrahamic religions. Evidently, humans inhabited the peninsula and the area of the modern city long before the arrival of the classical world Greeks during the first millennium BCE. On the Asian side of the Bosphorus Strait was the city of Chalcedon, a colony of the Greek mainland town of Megara. And legend tells us, through many classical Greek scribes, that the Greek god Apollo instructed that the Megaran called Byzas build a city on the opposite peninsula, which would come to be known as Byzantium. It is recognised from these earliest of times that the city of Byzantium was fertile and highly defensible especially by comparison to Chalcedon on the opposite side of the strait. Despite the city itself being defensible, the geographical location was at a critical crossroads of cultures, and this would often put the city at the centre of international hostilities. Western Anatolia was mainly under the control of the Lydians since the decline of the Hittites during the 6th century BCE. The Lydians were conquered by the Achaemenid Persians which brought them up to the Bosphorus Strait in the Greek-speaking world and the relationship between the Persians and the Greeks was soon to be hostile. The 5th century BCE was a time of increased tensions between Persia and Greece and the Greeks knew that maintaining control of Byzantium was key to preventing Persian influence in their region of the world. The Athenians relied on imports from the Black Sea, which would have been disrupted if the Persians took control of the city. Even though the Athenians were able to repel the Persians, the Spartans would challenge the Athenians for control of the city during the Peloponnesian War. This would be the situation until the rise of the Macedonians. After the Macedonian period, Byzantium 
was powerful enough to govern itself. When the Romans began to invade Greek and Balkan territories, Byzantium became a trusted ally, choosing to support the Romans over the Macedonians. Eventually, the city would become absorbed into the Roman Empire after the demise of the Roman Republic. The Latin name for the city is Byzantium, which is more commonly known than the Greek equivalent. Throughout its history, Byzantium was quite an independently minded city, with it holding a lot of influence. There were times when it rebelled against the Roman Empire, and there were times when barbarians attempted to gain control of the city. By and large, it remained an important city of the Roman Empire, and its influence and wealth due to its location soon meant that its significance could not be taken for granted. And it may have been this reason why Emperor Constantine the Great chose to establish Byzantium as the new capital city of the Roman Empire. The city would be renamed Constantinople in his honour. Not only would the political direction of the Roman Empire be controlled from Constantinople, but the religious direction would also be. Christian councils would be held in Constantinople in order to standardise Christian worship, which may have been unpopular in the city of Rome, which was the home of St Peter's Basilica and regarded as the spiritual home of the Christian church and the primary bishopric. The Roman Empire fragmented into two halves. The eastern half, governed from Constantinople, survived as the western half fell during the 5th century. Considerable defensive walls were built on the side of the peninsula accessible by land, making the city further impenetrable and making it one of the most defensible cities that ever existed. This wouldn't make the city trouble-free though, because the rule of Emperor Justinian in the 6th century would witness the Nika riots, a period of internal unrest that has been described as the most violent in the city's history. His reign also saw an outbreak of plague in the city, which was around the time of the first major outbreak of plague that would become a feature of medieval history. In the 7th century, the Sasanian Persians compromised the Byzantine Empire, taking control of Egypt and disrupting the grain supply to the city, which reduced the population. Avars, Persians and then Arabs would attempt to besiege Constantinople, but the defensibility of the city and the power of incendiary fluid called Greek fire would fend off the attacks. The Byzantine Empire The Byzantine Empire was a vast Mediterranean empire even after the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century. Although we refer to it as the Byzantine Empire, named after the original name for the city of Constantinople, Byzantium, the people of the Byzantine Empire saw themselves as Roman and viewed their realm as the natural continuation of the Roman state that originated in the city of Rome back in the 8th century BCE. When the Arabs became a significant international power during the 7th century, the fortunes and nature of the Byzantine Empire would irreversibly change. No longer could they protect the extremities of their vast realm and the population would either succumb to conquest or realise that their lives would be better under alternative rule. Throughout the history of the Byzantine Empire, the heartlands of the empire around the eastern Mediterranean would be attacked by a number of traditional enemies, such as the Persians, the Germanic tribes, the Bulgars and the South Slavs, other known Turkic peoples, the Rus, and Arabs and associated Muslim states. None of them could successfully besiege the capital city of Constantinople. The Isaurian dynasty of Byzantine rulers generally did not support the orthodox tradition of worshipping icons and depictions of Jesus Christ and other venerated individuals in relation to Christianity. This would create a schism between the Christian church based in Rome 
and the Christian Church based in Constantinople, and events would see this schism widen between the two churches as the centuries went by. The papacy in Rome would crown Holy Roman Emperors in a direct message to Constantinople that it did not recognise the Byzantine emperors as the true emperors of the Roman Empire. Those Christian nations that recognised the Pope as the head of the Christian Church would regard the Byzantines as the estranged Christian nation. The Byzantines would experience a resurgence in its own identity as a dominant nation when ruled by Basil the Bulgar Slayer, who famously conquered the Bulgarians and brutally punished the rebellious army who resisted him for many years. The entire Bulgarian kingdom would be added to the Byzantine Empire in a classical case of national conquest at the beginning of the 11th century. Byzantine glory would decline dramatically before the century was over, with the rise of the Seljuk Turks in the Middle East. When the Seljuk Turks invaded Byzantine territory in Anatolia, much of the Byzantine army was wiped out and Turkic peoples flooded into Anatolia. The Byzantines would never fully recover from this major setback in its national history. This would cause the Byzantines to plea for help from Rome under the premise that the Turkic invasions of Byzantine lands was effectively a Muslim invasion of the Christian church and that despite their fundamental differences, the Muslim invasion was a threat to Christianity itself. The Pope responded by instigating a series of crusades where many nobles and rulers from the Roman Catholic lands of Europe would campaign in the lands of the Levant and the Eastern Mediterranean for the glory and riches of victory. The Byzantines struggled to pull their financial weight during this period and so the Crusaders would put the Byzantines into some compromising positions. One such crusade resulted in the Crusaders targeting Constantinople itself and so a Latin contingent would take control of the city and the Byzantine royal dynasty would be exiled and control of Constantinople was lost during the 13th century. The new Latin Empire based in Constantinople soon proved to be an unstable one and a few decades later the Byzantines under the Paleologos dynasty would reclaim Constantinople and defend it from the Latins until they realised that they were unable to take the city back. The Ottoman Empire When the Byzantines moved back into Constantinople, a new Turkic entity had started to emerge in Anatolia, initially as a tribe among many other tribes in the former lands of the Rum Sultanate. This new Turkic entity were led by a man called Osman, and he was a leader of a tribe called the Osmanli, later to be known to history as the Ottomans. Though Osman's beginnings were humble, his ambitions were apparent, and he would look to carve out his own area of political influence, which he would look to expand over time. The Ottomans would very quickly begin raiding the Anatolian lands of the Byzantines at the beginning of the 14th century with success that enabled the Ottomans to declare their presence on the international stage. The Bithynian lands of the Byzantine Empire had been lost and then if anybody thought that the momentum of the Ottomans would falter after the lifetime of Osman, then they would be incorrect the Ottomans would continue to take important strategical Anatolian cities from the Byzantines such as Bursa and Nicaea. The Byzantine Empire then descended into civil war as competing dynasties bickered for control of the Byzantine throne. As can be the case, competing dynasties would look beyond their own borders to seek alliances with foreign nations and this happened when the Ottomans were invited to play their part in the civil war. As such, they were allowed to cross the Dardanelles Strait and set themselves up in European territory 
on the Gallipoli Peninsula. The issue with this is that when the Byzantine Civil War was over, the Ottomans did not leave. With their presence in Europe and the Byzantine Empire severely weakened, the Ottomans turned their attention to the Serbs and the Bulgarians who had also benefited from the problems within the Byzantine Empire. In the latter half of the 14th century, the Ottomans would score victories over both of these nations and make considerable gains in the Balkans. By the end of the 14th century, the Ottomans dominated all of the lands of the Eastern Balkans, including Thrace, which meant that the Byzantines were pinned back into Constantinople. One area of the Byzantine Empire that had managed to maintain its autonomy while all of the outreaching lands of Constantinople were falling was the despotate of the Maria. This province of the Byzantine Empire had been back in the possession of the Byzantines since the 13th century and existed on the Peloponnese, centred near the ancient city of Sparta, once home of the admired Spartans. The despotate would often be governed by a younger member of the royal dynasty, namely the Paleologus dynasty. During the reign of Emperor Manuel II, he would have a son that would eventually become the despot of the Maria, and his name was Constantine. Constantine Eleventh. Constantine would become the despot of the Morea in 1428, when his older brother was the Byzantine Emperor John VIII. Constantine was born in Constantinople in 1405 and was one of ten children of Emperor Manuel II. And we don't know a great deal about his childhood, which is probably unsurprising, considering this abundance of siblings, seven of which were older than him. Constantine would see military action in his early 20s after likely experiencing training in his younger years. He would be required to play an important role in successfully defending the despotate of the Morea from the aggressions of the despotate of Epirus before being granted the full rule of the despotate as stated previous. The success of the Paleologos dynasty in the Morea meant that they could expand the despotate to dominate the entire Peloponnese and even look to expand Byzantine influence again. So Constantine had had a respectable reputation and military career by the time of the death of his older sibling, the Byzantine Emperor John VIII. John may have been in his mid-50s when he died, reportedly of natural causes in 1448, and Constantine would eventually be accepted as his successor to reign as Constantine XI in a Byzantine empire that was facing increasing pressure from the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II. Mehmed II Mehmed was born during the reign of his father Murad II, Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Murad II was around the same age as Constantine XI, but he became the Ottoman Emperor in 1421 when aged around 17. Immediately he laid siege to the Byzantine capital of Constantinople, but the Byzantines were clever enough to support a rebellion by Murad's younger brother, Mustafa, who had ambitions towards the Ottoman throne himself. Murad lived the siege in order to go back and attend to Mustafa and defeat and execute him. The Ottoman capital was at Idirni, which was the former Roman city of Adrianople, which had fallen to the Ottomans during the 14th century. And with this being on European soil, the European nations were suitably concerned about the ambitions of this new westward expanding Islamic empire. So Murad would have to spend the next 20 years of his reign playing political chess with the Venetians, the Serbs and the Hungarians who had a dynastic link to the Polish kingdom. In 1444, Murad abdicated his throne to his adolescent son, Mehmed, who ruled as Mehmed II. 
Immediately, the opponents of the Ottomans drew up plans to exploit the inexperience of the new Ottoman sultan. So Mehmed had no option but to request that his father lead the army against the imminent threat of a joint attack by European nations supported by the Roman Catholic Church, so therefore referred to as the Crusade of Varna. The Ottomans led by Murad would score a great victory at the Battle of Varna, sending the Crusaders back to their own respective countries in shame. Murad would dish out a defeat in Kosovo to the Hungarians just four years later, and it must have seen that a considerable effort would be needed to drive the Ottomans out of Europe, perhaps more effort than some nations would be willing to invest in. Mehmed was no more than 12 or 13 years old on his first accession in 1444, but would have also been under the tutelage of men who would have been encouraging him to consider the total conquest of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. His father, Murad, was called back to be the emperor after abdicating, and he would assume this role until his own death in 1451. Now Mehmed was a grown man and proclaimed the emperor once again, and filled with ambition for the conquest of Constantinople. Prelude to the Battle Constantinople had had a reputation for being a city whose defences were unbeatable. The only way that Sultan Mehmed II would be able to finish off the Byzantines would be to strangle them to death slowly, and so he would have a plan to put the city under siege and make sure that he kept the siege going. The Byzantine Empire had always historically been able to rely on the waterways surrounding it to be able to obtain supplies, particularly from the Black Sea via the Bosphorus Strait. So if there was a way to prevent any maritime traffic from travelling along the Bosphorus Strait to the centre of Constantinople, then any siege of the city would reach a successful climax in a shorter amount of time. So in 1452, Mehmed would order the construction of a fortress on the European side of the Bosphorus Strait around six miles north of Constantinople. The fortress is called Rumeli Hisura and is still proudly standing on the water's edge to this day. The purpose of the fortress was to prevent any essential supplies from reaching the Byzantine capital city. The fortress has access to wonderful views along the Bosphorus Strait in both directions. The Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI had been approached by a man who was maybe of Hungarian heritage called Orban. Orban was a skilled engineer who had offered the construction of a large cannon to Constantine to assist him in the defence of his city. Cannons were a relatively new innovation with the advent of gunpowder use in warfare, which escalated as a resource during the 14th century. The offer of this large and powerful cannon was attractive to Constantine, who was keen to make the purchase. But he found out that Auburn's asking price was too high, as the Byzantine coffers were somewhat empty. And this was a disaster for the Byzantines, because the Ottomans certainly had the wealth, and so it was they who struck the deal with Orban for his expertise and weapons. So the cannon was commissioned, but yet to arrive at the scene. Constantine would understand that he needed to build defences, and so he would set about strengthening the famed Theodosian city walls before chaining off Constantinople's harbour at the Golden Horn, an estuary that bordered Constantinople to the north. Very limited crusader forces would join the Byzantine defenders, having been defeated in the previous decade by the Ottomans in the Balkans. All that remained were Genoese and Venetian traders who were traditional rivals with each other, but on this occasion united in wishing to keep the trade options open and not under the control of the Ottomans. It is suggested that the Byzantine army numbered around 7,000, 
2,000 of which were of foreign origin, such as the Genoese and Venetians mentioned before. These 7,000 military were responsible for protecting a population of around 50,000 individuals. In contrast, the Ottoman forces alone totaled around, if not more than, 50,000. Mehmed would set up camp outside the Theodosian walls and point those dozens of cannons that he did already have towards those defensive walls. The Siege of Constantinople The Ottoman camp was on the outskirts of the Theodosian walls, originally constructed during the reign of the Emperor Theodosius II a thousand years previous and re-fortified regularly, with this occasion being no exception. Mehmed would consider penetration of these walls as key to ultimate victory and with so many failed historical attempts to invade Constantinople from the sea. Mehmed's plan was to destroy the weakest parts of the Theodosian walls and to use sappers who can otherwise be referred to as mobile war engineers to compromise the foundations of the wall's towers. In the meantime, the Byzantine defenders would desperately attempt to repair the damaged walls before they could be overwhelmed and those Byzantine individuals who were captured by the Ottomans would be stripped naked and pierced with a wooden stake before being planted in the ground for all to see as a means to test the Byzantine nerve. The operation would take place over a few days at the start of April 1453. Then the big moment arrived when Auburn would finally arrive after the long haul of his impressive cannon from the city of Edirne. This weapon was an unimaginably powerful device for the 15th century, capable of propelling cannonballs over half a mile in distance. Such was the ferocity of the device that it was almost its own worst enemy, with the explosion required to propel the cannonballs requiring the cannon to be oiled and cooled down to prevent its own disintegration. Each firing of the cannon would need a good couple of hours of preparation as a consequence. Whether Mehmed would regret his decision to invest in Auburn's weapon is possible, as some sources tell us that the cannon suffered the same fate as many other cannons from this era, as metal fatigue caused the entire device to backfire and explode, killing Orban and many of his trusted team of operators. After a week or two, Mehmed had been able to successfully weaken an area of the Theodosian walls enough to be able to attempt to send troops through the breach. The Byzantines were certainly not interested in allowing them to do so with ease, and with a limited number of Ottomans being able to try to get through the wall, the Byzantines were able to go toe-to-toe with them and engage in close-quarters combat, including pouring boiling hot pitch over some of the unsuspecting aggressors. The penetration of the Theodosian walls was always going to be a very long-winded process, perhaps an operation that could take weeks or months of pressure. Constantine XI had limited resources and support, whereas Mehmed II had the ability to use not just cannons, but catapults, siege towers and battering rams, thanks to the wealth of his realm. In the meantime, the Ottoman naval commander Suleiman Baltolu was attempting to compromise the naval defences of Constantinople. It was at this point that a small number of Genoese galleys, maybe only three or four, had been sent with the Christian blessing of the Pope, laden with resources to aid the survival of Constantinople and its population. Even with all the doctrinal rivalry between Christian Rome and Christian Constantinople, it would have been of no interest for Rome to see Constantinople fall to Islamic invaders, although many Crusader forces had met their match against the Ottomans in the years leading up to this siege. Three or four ships should have had absolutely no chance of reaching the city of Constantinople, especially as they had been sighted and the Ottomans were in full knowledge of their approach. 
Mehmed's instruction to his naval commander Baltoglu was simple. Capture the ships or die trying. What transpired was a game of cat and mouse in and around the waters of the Bosphorus. The Christian flotilla was able to take advantage of the wind direction to be able to avoid capture and successfully deliver its cargo to Constantinople and Mehmed was furious. It was vital, however, that the Ottomans remained focused on the matter in hand so Mehmed would concentrate some efforts into filling the empty moat protecting the Theodosian walls so that he could transport greater numbers of infantry and artillery into the breaches of the walls. The Byzantines continued to bravely resist the relentlessly attacking Ottomans. The chains across the Golden Horn also needed to be breached in order to attack the Byzantine fleet and so the Ottomans would begin to haul their sea vessels across the land in order to relaunch on the Byzantine side of the chain. The efforts of the Ottomans to break the city of Constantinople were absolutely considerable. Mehmed didn't really want to expend all of his resources in destroying Constantinople and slaughtering its population, with Constantinople being a city which could prove to be a lucrative new capital city for the Ottomans, enabling them to acquire more wealth by which they could successfully campaign against both their Christian European and their Muslim Asian enemies, who would show aggressive intent towards him and his empire. Mehmed would much prefer to see the surrender of the Byzantines and a peace agreement reached, but Constantine and the Byzantines would have no intention of surrendering, despite the fact that Ottoman tactics were slowly breaking down Byzantine resistance. The Byzantines continued to fight for their lives, destroying Ottoman siege engines and preventing Ottoman attempts to tunnel into the city. The resistance almost broke the spirits of the Ottoman invaders, who had continued to try to break the city through the rest of April and almost the entire month of May. Rebellions broke out among the Ottoman ranks as the attrition took its toll on them also. Mehmed would have to look to finish the job quickly or face joining the long list of failed sieges of Constantinople. Morale was low on both sides. A lunar eclipse served as a bad omen to the citizens who were aware of a prophecy stating that the city would fall during such an event. Constantine's choices were to surrender and face a forced conversion to Islam or to try to avoid slaughter and conquest until more resources arrived from the west. Mehmed's choices were to give up the siege or to promise his forces the unobstructed access to the riches of Constantinople through unpoliced pillage. It was the middle of the night before the dawn of the 29th of May that the Ottomans made an all-out attempt to blitz the city by sending the entire Ottoman army towards the walls one final time under the symphony of trumpets, drums and war cries. It must have been terrifying. Naval servants conducted similar and simultaneous attacks from the Golden Horn. The Byzantine commander conducting affairs from the walls was a man called Giovanni Justiniani, a man of Genoese origin. During this final surge, Justiniani was lethally wounded and it became clear that he would need to be removed from the action. Constantine realised that the morale of his Genoese allies may be ruined with the loss of their great commander Justiniani and he pleaded with him not to leave the city. However, Justiniani was loaded onto a Genoese galley and the Genoese contingent left the city clearly believing that its defence was now a lost cause. With the final onslaught appearing to be realising success, Mehmed pushed on by commanding his Janissaries, his elite warriors, to breach the now weakly defended walls and enter the city 
Constantine and his corps guard had to retreat to the inner confines of Constantinople as the Ottomans continued to advance. Byzantine residents would flee back into their houses in a seemingly vain attempt to protect their families from the imminent terror that was approaching. Genoese and Venetians launched their ships that would have been overloaded with refugees attempting to flee the city once and for all. Ottoman flags were being raised above the city, while Constantine was faced with his own ultimate fate. There are no known witnesses, but some reports suggest that Constantine threw away his royal regalia before sacrificially charging into the advancing Ottoman janissaries with no chance of survival. The fall of Constantine XI marked the fall of Constantinople. Aftermath This was not the first time that the Byzantines had been run out of Constantinople though. Around 250 years earlier, Baldwin of Flanders had run the Byzantines out of Constantinople and established a new Latin Empire. With the Byzantines in exile, they established rump territories in Nicaea, Epirus and Trebizond. The fragility of the Latin Empire meant that the Byzantines were able to reclaim the city within a couple of generations. This time, the Byzantines still maintained control of Trebizond, but also the despotate that was previously under the control of the fallen Emperor Constantine XI on the Peloponnese called the Despotate of the Morea. The difference this time was that the conquerors of Constantinople were not fragile Latins, but this time they were wealthy Ottomans, and so there would be no route back to the city for the Byzantines. Mehmed would conquer both the Despotate of the Morea and the Empire of Trebizond, within a decade of the fall of Constantinople, deposing the ruling Byzantine dynasties of each territory, meaning that the Byzantines had no control over any land and putting an end to an empire which was regarded as a continuation of the great classical Roman Empire, itself a political entity which had originated back in the 8th century BCE, according to literary tradition. Therefore, this marked the end of Roman culture and politics after 2,200 years of existence. When we consider Roman history from this perspective, then we can gain a deeper perspective of the impact and legacy of the existence of Roman culture on our lives today, ingrained in global politics, language, business, the arts, architecture, religion and beyond. This was arguably the end of the most influential culture to ever grace planet Earth. It took the power of another extremely influential culture that found its roots in the success of the Seljuk Turks, who itself drew from the tenaciousness of semi-nomadic steppe cultures that had struck fear in the hearts of more established, wealthy and civilised cultures for many centuries alongside the pious traditional determination of the Muslim cultures that had taken academia and science to new levels. Christian cultures of Europe had to look beyond their own military abilities to advance to new levels themselves in order to gather the strength to take on these new dominant Turkic cultures of the Balkans. And so a cultural renaissance would follow alongside more open-minded methods of thinking not under the direction of papal approval and a necessity to expand its approach to gather wealth from further afield, which would lead to an age of exploration that would interlink the politics of the entire globe like never before. This was effectively the transition of the world from the medieval age to the modern age.
Thank you very much for joining me on this fantastic journey um, through the final days and uh, weeks of the Byzantine Empire. Um, we call this episode the fall of Constantinople and uh, I, I might say rather controversially, I've got a, a bit of a problem with that as well. Um, I don't see this necessarily as the fall of Constantinople. Um, more more like the rebirth of the city, to be honest. The Byzantine Empire was a, uh, was a crippled empire, to, to say the very least. In its final years, it was really just... Uh, amounting to nothing on the international scene whatsoever. It really just was a city-state by the end of its uh, existence. And uh, with no wealth in the Byzantine Empire and no, you know, very little assistance from um, you know, from the West and um, supplies not, you know, not making it across the Black Sea um, into Byzantine, into Constantinople. Um, when the Ottomans took the city of Constantinople, they, within sort of half a century, they they built it back up to be a glorious city of wealth and trade. And um, so it really was a rebirth of the city. So um, not so much a fall as a rebirth, but um, I know, you know, there's going to be a controversial point to make, but I, do, I just genuinely feel like that is a, a much more correct um, analysis of what has happened here. But great episode and a great story so thank you so much for uh, coming along with me for that little journey the ancient world cup so ancient world cup this week was group k in which we found uh, the harappans uh, aka the indus valley civilization the chabin um, of peru uh, the acadians of mesopotamia and uh, the Ptolemies um, from Egypt, uh, Ptolemaic Egypt. And um, now we can announce the results of which two of those teams uh, have been voted for by you to advance into the next round. And uh, so um, the winners of the group, runaway winners in the end, with 51% of the vote were the Acadians. In second place, marginally, very, very close, very close indeed, um, with 22% of the votes marginally finish in second was Ptolemaic Egypt, which means, unfortunately, with 20% of the vote, we've lost the Harappans um, and uh, the Chabin. Um, were sort of rock bottom with 7% of the votes. So we lose the Harappans and the Chabin, the Akkadian, the, I beg your pardon, the Akkadians and the Ptolemaic Egyptians um, have made it through to the next round. We, you know, unfortunately we have to lose two. So, and uh, so sadly we've lost um, those two. So um, commiserations to all those Indus Valley Civilization fans. I know there's a few of you out there. Um, next week, uh, there there's going to be no World Cup, um, and I'll I'll let you know why later. Listener messages and reviews. Okay, uh, I've got some listener messages this week. Um, um, a little bit critical as well, which is a great thing that I'm beginning to see as the podcast gets through the volumes and as the uh, maybe the expectations of the podcast and of the volumes uh, changes. And, you know, some people have enjoyed volumes one and two and are not enjoying volumes three and four as much. So um, I'm going to read out a couple of emails now that were excellent emails, really uh, good emails to receive. Um, Tobias, um, I uh, forgive me, Tobias uh, Hallswit, Hallswit, maybe I've, maybe I've said your name incorrectly, I apologise Tobias. Dear Chris, my name is Tobias, I live in Leipzig, Germany, yes, you've got German listeners as well, so please have mercy on my poor English, it, your English is going to be a lot better than my German Tobias, I wouldn't worry about that. 
I've been listening to your fantastic podcast for many months now. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your enthusiasm. You really make history come alive. There is one thing that I loved especially about the first episodes on paleo history and missed in most of the latter episodes that I have heard. And that is daily life. How did people live? What did they eat, dress in? How did their working life look like? How did education look like? What tools and weapons did they use? What were their religious uh, religions and beliefs? What sort of architectures did they live in and from which materials did they build it? What did male-female relations look like? How was society structured? What kind of law did they develop? In which science were they good at? I haven't heard all the episodes, so maybe there is more of it than I think uh, right now. If not, it would be great to hear more about these things again. Thank you so much for your great work and keep going, Tobias. Um, We'll find this as we go on in history, Tobias. It's um, a fantastic email and... um, it's also something I'm very interested in is uh, sort of day-to-day life. And the thing is, in order to cover the history of the world, you have to look at the diversifying societies of the globe. And so a lot of our time is taken up by talking about um, who was doing what in terms of uh, sort of nations of people. And, uh, and you can't do that without focusing on the key characters. So... Um, so this is going to, we're going to probably uh, be talking a little less about um, all of these individual aspects as we go forward. Um, however, there's no getting away from the fact that people are genuinely interested in it. And, um, you know, maybe um, down the line I could potentially create a new volume or even a new podcast that focuses on this area because I, I do have materials um, that, do sort of look at that kind of aspect of history. It's a bit of an alternative view of history, um, but it's a, it's also a very popular view of history. So, um, you know, I do hope that maybe I can concentrate some efforts in, like, for example, like um, next week, this is where it becomes difficult. So, um, or in the next episode of the podcast, we're going to be going back to um the fall of rome and and what was going on in europe and in order to do that we have to focus on all the individual societies of europe really so the next um the next episode is on the visigoths um so we're really concentrating on the political movement and of the visigothic culture um so there's not a lot of time really for for the life of the everyman and uh, that's a shame really but um, and it's an excellent message to bias, and it will certainly get me thinking about how I can integrate these aspects of um, of human society into the story. So um, it, ne- it never falls on deaf ears when you send me such messages. And I thank you so much, Tobias. It's one of the, the better messages that I've received recently. Um, I can also say the same for uh, a message that I've received from Ian King. Uh, Ian has put, hi, I'm from New Zealand. And have only recently discovered your podcast. I'm up to volume two, The Ancient World, learning so much, it's great. In the very first podcast, you quoted Genesis uh, and then proceeded to go down the evolution rabbit hole. While I don't take the Bible literally, I do take it seriously. While other ancient cultures have similar creation myths, the Hebrew one is the one that has endured. For that reason alone, it, it cannot be ignored. The dogmas of evolution require no less faith than the religious dogmas of the religions of the book. While there is ample evidence of plants and animals changing over long periods of time, I have yet to see any of a plant or animal changing from one type to another. Cats, for example, are always cats, from the lion to the house cat. The interbreed ability of large cat species uh, shows just how closely related they are. I think the classification of animals into species can be quite misleading. All this to say that there is no less reasonable to suggest that uh, humans were created as to say they evolved. I hope at some point you will be addressing religion and present the alternative to evolution. Uh, best regards, Ian. I think um, it's a great email, that, Ian. And um, I think sometimes um, if we talk about rabbit holes, we can also talk about the fact that... Um, there is a rabbit hole that exists um, since the 19th century that uh, says that evolution is in direct opposition to um, to creationism. And I don't believe that that's the case. Um, I think um, there is compelling 
scientific evidence for the evolution process and, and there is tangible evidence for that and there's a very real um there is a very real school of thinking um that can be reasoned very strongly about evolution and uh, i i certainly have people emailing me and and they say that they do believe in god um and uh, they do believe that god created the universe and they believe that in creating the universe he created the wonder of evolution that is evidenced by science to this day so um for me when i'm talking about creation theory uh, that kind of creation belief is no less important than maybe the creationist story in the bible so although i understand uh, that um some people may deem it to be very important to talk about the the biblical um story of creationism um in the grand scheme of talking about the evolution of humankind uh, the hebrew uh, description of uh, of the creation of humans is just one uh, uh, is one literal resource of the creation theory and that could upset many people but the history of the world podcast is a very definitive overview of history and um, we can't be too central about one particular story we have to uh, we have to talk about it in respect to other people's points of view and other other religious books um, and their creation theory. We're saying that the Hebrew one is the one that has endured, certainly in Western society, yes, but certainly not in Eastern Orientalized cultures. The Hebrew uh, creationist theory is is about as meaningless as as you know maybe some Eastern uh, creation theories are too. Um, Western societies, so so we have to be very very open minded about how we present this information. And yes, it's important, but it's probably uh, in the minds of of the entire population of the world no more important than someone else's creationist uh, point of view. So I hope I've I've been fair, and I know that there's no way that I can write this podcast without upsetting certain people. And I think you know. Your email, Ian, is an incredibly important reminder to all of us that we need to be as open-minded as possible about every aspect of uh, human evolution, human creation, uh, including the one that you've referenced, the Hebrew Bible uh, creation theory is, is very much one of the more important um, creation theories that uh, has come about. So thank you so much, Ian, and... It was a pleasure really to talk about um, those more, could we say, controversial emails rather than the ones that just simply compliment the show. As, as grateful as I am to receive the complimentary ones, um, and indeed the last two were very complimentary about the podcast, don't get me wrong, but also they brought up um, criticisms which um, I always think, you know, the word criticism is always portrayed in a negative light. Um, for me, criticism is a healthy thing um, and I and I encourage it and I welcome it and I love the opportunity to debate and talk about these things. So, um, you know, if we all get pleasure out of debating and, and arguing these things, um, then surely it should be encouraged. So thank you, gentlemen, for both your messages. They're two of the better messages that I've received in recent weeks, so I appreciate them greatly. Um, in terms of, um, I know uh, some of you have been making contributions to the podcast, and uh, I want you to know that um, you do qualify for rewards when you do make contributions to the podcast. And hopefully in terms of what Tobias is suggesting about um more information about everyday life you know who knows maybe the the time will come where i can have the time to devote to that kind of thing and i can invest in the resources and the only way i can do that is with your help so um for all of you that do want to help me to increase the quality of the history of the world podcast all you simply need to do is go to the history of the world podcast.com website and sign up through the patreon link to make a monthly contribution towards the show um, when you do that, um, you're automatically um, allowed to become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. 
And uh, we also send you uh, gifts and rewards uh, when you do that. And um, I I have some new members to introduce this week. Uh, we've got Manav Singh, Sebastian Oswald, Brad Newcomb and Zuni Piccarelli. Uh, thank you to each of you for becoming new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You will uh, undoubtedly help the podcast to flourish. So thank you very much. Uh, let's uh, go and see if we've had any reviews this week. Uh, do you know what? I've, I've not done my homework this week at all. Um, I've got no idea if we've got any new reviews. Let's, uh, let's have a look. Rambling Maz. Rambling Maz from the USA. Um, has put, uh, scope and scale are mind-bogglingly huge and he's pulled it off marvellously. Shame all history lessons can't be delivered in the sweet, in that sweet, sweet cockney. I love the throwback sound effects and music. Don't listen to the naysayers. Scores big on old internet kitsch while still presenting an acceptably modern production with great sound quality. Keep up the good work, Chris. Um, heavily buttered popcorn uh, from the USA has put one of a kind. Why listen? You want to journey through an overview of all of human history in a chronolo- chronologically arranged 40-minute chunks. There's really nothing else like this project available in your podcast feed, and why should there be? The scale of the podcast is enormous, and I can only imagine how daunting it has been to arrange the material. But Chris Hasler has an incredible knack for discerning the crucial facts and stories that help outline each culture and era he covers while not getting derailed by unnecessary complexity. After all, there are more other uh, there are other more narrowly tailored history podcasts that will do that for you. His thick English accent might be difficult for American listeners at first, but once oriented, his delivery of his scripts is engaging and genial. Thanks to Chris for giving the world such a well-researched and enjoyable show. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for those kind uh, words. And uh, it's my pleasure as ever uh, for those who have taken the time and effort to write uh, such articulate reviews for me to read them out. And uh, some might look at it as uh, self-promotion or indulging in, uh, in in compliments. It's really not about that. It's about... Um, it's about thanking those people for what they've done, for, for what they are doing to help to promote this project and make it better. And uh, also thanking them for their time in doing that. So they deserve uh, for me to read them out, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. Anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, next week, it's not going to be an episode, unfortunately. Um, sad to say, um, I've got um, something I need to go and do this week. Um, and therefore, I'm not going to be av- available to podcast next week. Um, so there may be one or even two uh, unscripted episodes, certainly no more than two, hopefully just one, but we'll, we'll wait and see how things go. Um, the next proper episode will be on the Visigoths, um, the fascinating story of how a Germanic tribe uh, who migrated uh, from the area of the Vistula River, um, or so we believe, um, eventually came to be the reason why Spain and Portugal exist. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then uh, you know, make sure that you're there for that episode. Um, next week, hopefully, I might be able to squeeze out a late unscripted episode. I don't like to... Uh, leave you with it with nothing so i'll make an effort um but until then have a great week everyone and uh, also never forget to be good the history of the world podcast written and presented by chris hasler please consider making a financial contribution by going to the history of the world podcast.com website and clicking on the patreon link Email the show at history of the world podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.